Good morning. <laughs> I'm 88. <laughs> I'm still alive. <laughs> you know, we all have a sarcastic streak in us. I went to um, Target store and I saw all these greeting cards full of sarcasm. I thought you might like to hear some of them. Looking back over the years that we've been together, I can't help but wonder, what was I thinking? I've always wanted to have someone to hold, someone to love. After having met you, I've changed my mind. As the days go by, I think of how lucky I am that you're not here to ruin it for me. As you grow older, Mom, I think of all the gifts you've given me, like the need for therapy. You know, human nature is something that has not pleased God. One of the uh, chief arguments for atheism is the evil that's in this world. Rather than blaming it on humanity, they blame it on God. And the question is, why would a holy God tolerate sinful humanity for thousands of years? Why doesn't he just end it all in judgment and save himself a lot of pain? The Bible reveals that God has a redemptive purpose for humanity. We want to explore this purpose. Our scripture text this morning reveals what God has in mind for us. Romans 8, 28 to 31. By the way, this is one of my favorite promises from God. And we know that all things work together for good, those for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So this promise that God will cause all of our life experiences to work out for our good is based on two conditions, that you love God and that you are in the center of his purpose. What is his purpose? Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I wonder about predestination. I've been studying predestination from the Calvinist view, from the Arminian view, but I've come up with a different view. God foreknew everyone. And God said, let us create man in our image after our likeness. And so he did. But something happened. Man had disobeyed God. They decided to trust the serpent instead of the word of God that said, if you eat that knowledge, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And death and sin and evil entered the human race. And God could have ended it all right there. He could have finished mankind off. But he did not. Moreover, whom he predestinated, these he also called. And so God had a call. He said, hey, Adam, where are you? And there's a universal call. Paul, the apostle, said 
to the men and women that were in Athens. God commandeth men everywhere to repent. God is calling every person to repent. And it says here, Moreover, whom he predestinated, these he also called. So there's a call, the universal call. And those who accept this call, he also justified. And whom he justified, these also he glorified. So we have some theological terms, justification, glorification. What a significant truth that is, that God has called us to ultimate glorification. I have three points I want to make. God's purpose is to call us back to himself. That's why the call has gone out that men would come back to God. Secondly, God's purpose is justifying the unjustifiable. You know, in the natural, we can't really be justified for our actions, but God has provided a justification for the unjustifiable. And thirdly, God's purpose is to glorify redeemed humanity with perfection. So let's first of all look at the first point. God's purpose is to call us back to himself. He loves us. He loves his fallen creation. And he calls us back to himself. But that call can be resisted through unbelief. Look at Proverbs 1, verse 28. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way. Because I called, but you did not answer. When you call, I will not answer. And you know, God's call can be resisted through unbelief. I remember when I was working in Pittsburgh, I led a young Jewish man to accept Yeshua as his Messiah. His mother became interested in my Bible study, and she came. One day she said, I believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God. I said, well, that's wonderful, Elaine. Why don't we just now pray and receive Yeshua as your Savior? She said, no, I want to wait for my husband. He had not attended the Bible study. So she went home and asked her husband to accept Yeshua. I mean, he knew his son was a believer. But he said, if you accept Yeshua, I will divorce you. So she rejected Yeshua. And a darkness came over her. She became hostile to to belief. She tried to persuade her son to reject the Messiah, which he refused to do. What she didn't know was that her husband would have loved to have used that as an excuse to tell his Jewish relatives, I I divorced her because of her faith in this Yeshua. 
But actually, he was unfaithful to her. They had a, a dress shop, and he was having an affair with one of the sales ladies. And he wanted to divorce her, which he eventually did. I met her son many years later. He was a pastor of a church. And I asked him how his mother was, and he had a sad story. Not only was she divorced, but she was now living with a man unmarried. Now, God was not punishing her, but God wanted to help her. He knew the secret of her husband. He knew how he had betrayed his wife. But we must accept God's call by faith. As I mentioned before, in the promise of Romans 8.28, there are two conditions. One is to love God, and the other is to be called according to his purpose. And it's by faith in accepting the call of God. In fact, uh, I read the story of Spurgeon. Let me tell you, Spurgeon was one of the great preachers in England. In fact, Lee and I still read his devotions that he wrote, A Man of God. But he wrote in his autobiography that there were years upon years that I feared hell. I mean, in my own feeling, I was unhappy. I was despondent, desponding. I was despairing. He said, I dreamt of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. Charles Spurgeon used those strong terms to describe his adolescent years, in spite of the fact that he was brought up in a congregational church, he had no assurance of salvation. When he was 15, he wanted to attend his church, but there was a snowstorm. And so in order to take some shelter, he went into a little uh, primitive Methodist church uh, to get out of the storm. And that day, the pastor did not make the service, so they had a layman. Layman was not a great preacher, and there weren't very many in the congregation. But he said, Look unto me, you ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And then he pointed to this young man, Spurgeon, and said, You look miserable, young man. Look unto Jesus. Look unto him. And he said he had a vision, not of his eye, and his, with his eyes, but in his heart of Jesus. And he became a believer. He put his faith. When he came home, his mother said, You look like something wonderful has happened to you. He is one of the great preachers. And so, by faith, by accepting the Lord. He, I remember the day that God called me. See, there's a universal call. And when we hear the gospel, there's a personal call. And I remember sitting in the gospel meeting house and God opened my mind to the wonderful plan of salvation. 
And I accepted that plan of salvation by faith. And I remember I was almost, I've told you this before, almost ready not to accept it because there seemed to be another voice that I was listening to that said, look, you're a sinner and you're going to sin. So why would you want to accept Jesus and he'll forgive you of all your past sins but later on you will sin and be lost hopelessly? Just then the preacher said, when you accept Jesus, God forgives you of your past, your present, your future sins. I said, that's good enough for me. I've been a believer for 73 years. I haven't reached perfection yet. I thought I would when I was 30, but it didn't happen. I mean, I'm, thank God that uh, uh, the Lord has been with me. Now, second point is that God's purpose is to justify the unjustifiable. In verse 10, Moreover, whom he predestinated, these he also called. Whom he called and accepted the call, these he also justified. Now, justification is more than forgiveness. Justification is having your record that is against you wiped out. God doesn't see that anymore. It's been washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. It eliminates all that which is against us. Well, how could a holy and just God do that? Well, First Peter 3, verse 18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The just one who did not deserve to die, he had never sinned. He was in perfect relationship with the Father, gave up his life, and paid for our sins. The just died for the unjust, and so God, Jesus, could forgive the unjustifiable. Remember the thief on the cross that said to the other thief, he said, why are you ridiculing Jesus? We deserve to die. Our life has been a wicked life. But the Son of God, this one, doesn't deserve it. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. He found justification when he was unjustifiable in in any of the uh, uh, his own uh, character. Uh, now, so God justifies the worst of sinners. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, I think we probably all know that hymn by heart. It's played at almost every funeral. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. 
You see, John Newton was a slave trader, and he had done many wicked things to those slaves. He mistreated them. He put them in chains when they would die because of malnutrition or disease. He'd throw them overboard. How could God justify such a rotten sinner? One day there was a storm, and he was thrown into the sea, and he sought God, and God saved him. And by the way, he even was a slave for a short time to an African woman. And yet God did justify him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And you know, after he became a pastor, he wrote Deuteronomy 15.15 in bold letters. He put it over the mantle of his study where he could not fail to see it. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. He also wrote, because justification does not make us perfect, he said, he wrote his epitaph, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. You know, another thing to realize, we're incapable of justifying ourselves. We can excuse ourselves. And you know, Freud talked about all the defense mechanisms of the ego. We could uh, rationalize, we can justify ourselves, but not before God. And that's why the Lord says to confess our sins. He knows them anyway. And uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be born, uh, be poor in spirit? Poor in spirit means that you feel you have no moral riches and are in need. You feel you need spiritual life. Poor used in this verse means reduced be, to being a beggar. This makes sense that we can confirm its meaning by comparing other passages that Jesus gave. He often said the same thing. To be poor in spirit is to recognize your other spiritual bankruptcy before God. It is understanding that you have absolutely nothing of worth to offer God. Being poor in spirit is admitting that because of your sin, you are completely destitute spiritually, and you can do nothing to deliver yourself. It's like saying, we're beggars, we're homeless, we have no destiny to look forward to. But you know, John Newton said as well, although my memory is fading, he was getting to be an old man. I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater savior. He's a greater savior. Thirdly, so just, we're justified by faith in Jesus. He paid for our justification. There's nothing against us anymore before God. We're not perfected yet, but we are justified before God. 
Thirdly, God's purpose is to glorify sinners with perfection. God's process of purification begins with justification. It begins. I want to tell you the word justification is a wonderful theological term. I mean, we know what justification means. We know what reconciliation means. We know what regeneration means. But we are, we are destined to glorification. And God's process of that purification begins with justification. Look with me at the text. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It says, though it's completed, this is why it speaks in the past tense. It's God has justified us before him. And he will glorify us. It's assured, absolutely. Now, we know and understand justification. And let me give you another verse. Jesus made a prediction in Matthew 5, 48. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now think of that. God's ultimate purpose in redeeming you is to make you as perfect as the Heavenly Father. You will not know sin anymore. You will be without spot or wrinkle. You will be blameless for eternity. You will be just like the Lord Jesus. You will be glorified with the blessedness of perfection. See, the, the Lord is our righteousness. Listen to what God promised in Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a true heart. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. The Tanakh promised this, and Jesus has given this, the promise, made the promise reality. Now, right now, we are in the process of sanctification. And that's a process. But when I came to the Lord, and I was regenerated, or born again, I suddenly had new desires. I had a desire to be holy. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Notice, we hunger for true righteousness because we don't have it in our own nature. But there is one who will fill us with that righteousness, Jesus, our Lord. You know, now we are growing. We haven't yet reached perfection. I'm not, in fact, I like what John Newton said. I'm not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in, this, in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I asked Lee the other day, do you think I've improved? Of course, she's very gracious and said, yes, you're a much better man. 
but I'm not quite perfect yet. But God revealed that we will be perfected. Look at verse 29 of our text. For whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what we're predestinated for. We've accepted the call of God into salvation on his terms that he might be the firstborn among brethren. Here's how it worked. The eternal Son of God became the Son of Man. And now the sons and daughters of mankind can become the children of God. He is the firstborn. He became a man. He died. He was resurrected. He ascended. He was glorified. And now we are destined to be just like him forever and ever. And he will be the firstborn of this new creation, the eternal Son of God. In fact, I would tell you this, human righteousness is inadequate to save us. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It has to be greater than their righteousness, which is legalism. It has to be a righteousness of the heart. The righteousness of the Pharisees was the best that human nature could produce. They tried their very best by keeping laws and legalism to become righteous. But God says it has to be beyond that. It has to be the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of humanity. I want to tell you about two ancient rabbis. I've told you this before. And there was uh, Saul of Tarsus, who was a rabbi, a member of the Sanhedrin. And there was Ben Zakkai, who lived at the same time. But they took two different pathways. Ben Zakkai, after the destruction of the temple, said, well, we don't have the sacrifices anymore. But what we need to do as a substitute is pray and do good works. And he accepted the oral traditions of the Pharisees, trying to maintain their own righteousness. But the Apostle Paul, who was known as Saul of Tarsus, accepted Yeshua as the Messiah. Now, at the end of their lives, their dying words are recorded. This is not something that I got out of a Christian magazine. This came out of the, the Talmud, came out of ancient literature. When Rabbi Ben Zakkai was dying on his deathbed, his students came to visit him. When he saw them enter, he began to cry, Rabbi, the light of Israel, the right pillar, the strong hammer, said his disciples. Why do you cry? The rabbi answered, If I would have to appear in front of an ordinary king who rules only temporarily and whose anger is not lasting and whose death penalty is only of a short duration, 
Wouldn't I be terrified now that I must come before the King of Kings, whose rule is eternal and whose anger is eternal and whose punishment of death remains everlasting? Should I not be frightened? Furthermore, he said, there are two paths in front of me. One leads to the Garden of Eden, while the other leads to Gehenna. And one can never be sure on which path he will be led. Therefore, I cry. He didn't know that he would face Yeshua after death, that he would face the King of Kings. He had no peace in his heart. He died in anguish. On the other hand, look at Saul of Tarsus, who became a believer. He wrote down his last words in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Notice, he kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them who love his appearing. Notice the difference. Then Zachai had no assurance of life after death, but Paul faced death with confidence in the joy of the Spirit. He suffered a great deal for his faith. He was rejected by his own people. But yet he wrote in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, the glory that we will be in the very image of God. This is all done for us on our behalf. We're secure in Jesus. And you know, I'm so glad for that. You know, one thing I think as you get older, as I do, you start remembering all the mistakes you made. You know, I, there were times I thought I was in the spirit of God, and I was proud. And all the times I could have done better, but you know, to know it's okay. All washed away in the precious blood of Jesus. And I can face with confidence, not only that I'll see Jesus and be in heaven forever, but by the grace of God, I'll be crowned with the crown of righteousness. And so will you. In fact, we'll all be perfect. <laughs> There'll be no quarrels in heaven, no conflict, because we love the Lord. And you know why we love him? Because he first loved us. It's because he called us into his family. Because he justified us. Because he reconciled us. And one day, he'll glorify us with the righteousness of God. I can't hardly conceive of that we will be as perfect as the Heavenly Father. Perfect in righteousness and holiness, because it will be his righteousness and his holiness that will share with us. The Lord is our righteousness. That's what we look forward to. Hallelujah. <laughs> I can get excited. Why not? Get a little excited. It's good for an old man. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray that this message 
might be a help and encouragement to others. That you have a purpose. You've allowed man to go on because there were generations in which there would be those who would say yes to you. And for the sake of your love for us, you suffered with us. But we know the day of, the day of judgment will come for those who have refused. Pray that everyone here will know Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.